this episode, we discuss all things gestational diabetes. This is a two-part episode, as there was just so much to talk about. If you have not listened to the first part, stop, pause, go back and get on it now. Otherwise, it will just all be upside down and backwards. In part two, we discuss the baby. What is hypoglycemia? How does it affect babies? What are the signs and how is it currently treated? We look at some of the evidence and guidelines for treatment, as well as antenatal hand expression, what helps support a baby's blood glucose level after birth, and the link between women with gestational diabetes and delayed onset of lactation, milk coming in late, and its potential impact on future breastfeeding. And of course, how to get breastfeeding off to a good start. It's a jam-packed one, as always, and you'll find all the links in our show notes. So, go on, get your cup of tea, start the engine as always, and enjoy the show. I'm Katie James, and this is the Midwives Cauldron Podcast. Each episode, I'm joined by my incredible co-host, Dr. Rachel Reed. Listen in as we hubble, bubble, toil and trouble our way through aspects of womanhood, midwifery, birth and lactation. So go on, subscribe now and hear us on your favorite podcast host. So now, Katie, you're taking over because the baby's been born. So I hope you did your revision because here are the questions. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like mastermind. <laughs> and now for your 10 questions. <laughs> Clock is so on. Apart from, you, apart from you cheated and wrote the questions. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Katie, are you ready? <clears throat> First question. What effect can gestational diabetes have on the baby after birth? That wasn't the first question. Now I've got to look through my notes. <laughs> <laughs> it's because I'm looking at your notes. <laughs> Bollocks. <laughs> I'm cutting that. <laughs> you I are not. know this. <laughs> the main thing and what I'm really going to talk about is hypoglycemia, so hypo-low glycemic sugar. And I'm going to talk a bit more about this further down. And again, the respiratory distress you have mentioned, and I was going to say exactly the same thing. Another thing that we tend to see more is premature birth. But again, is that because <laughs> we're inducing them? Um, and jaundice. So we may see that these babies are more likely to have jaundice. But again, that leads me back to the fact of we know that babies who don't feed us frequently in the first 24 hours are much more likely to end up with jaundice. And so if these babies have low blood sugar, I mean, anyone here can probably tell you, like I'm sitting here with low blood sugar now, and <laughs> I'm feeling a little weak and dizzy. And I would love someone to be here to make my breakfast for me and just deliver it because I don't really want to do it for myself. And so if you've got low blood sugar, you're going to be more tired. You're going to be more sleepy. So this means that that baby's probably not going to go to the breast as frequently, particularly if we are, you know, my classic wrapping the baby up like a little burrito and sticking it in the plastic cot. 
you know, so these babies may not have such vigorous um, feeding cues for the mum and we may miss them. Same with late preterms or any baby that may be compromised. So if their blood sugar is low, we need to keep them in skin to skin contact. And we're going to talk a bit more about what is low blood sugar. And also, if they have genuinely had high levels of insulin in utero because they've been trying to deal with their mother's high glucose, then insulin increases red blood cells. So you'll often see the baby come out really kind of red looking. That's one of the things to do. And then they've got to break down those red blood cells and get them out of their system, which they do through feeding. And that just adds into the jaundice, you know, into the jaundice situation. Yeah, completely. So it's all about the fact that the baby's been fueled with, if this mother is in unregulated or she's got high glucose levels floating around, so she's got all the little uh, Pac-Man sweets hanging around, then this baby suddenly is born and this baby has more Pac-Man, more insulin to eat up the sweets. And um, the baby's then born and obviously that continuous dose of high glucose has stopped. And so the baby's got more Pac-Men, more insulin, which means that it's going to potentially drop its glucose levels much quicker and potentially they're going to stay lower. And that's why uncontrolled diabetes and sugar levels is more concerning in terms of the risk factor of a baby having low blood sugar. What are normal blood sugar levels for a newborn? Because I hear lots of different versions of this answer. So give us the definitive one, Katie. Well, I'm afraid to tell you uh, after 60 years of research that's been going on, and obviously a lot has changed in how we manage mothers and infants over the last 60 years, because we did actually wrap them up like little burritos and separate them from their mothers, which made feeding even harder. But even so, after 60 years, we do not have a definitive number. So um, we don't exactly know what is too low or how long low glucose level is a problem and in which infants. Mm. So um, I will tell you the general process of what tends to happen. So at birth, we know for actually all mammals, so that includes us, glucose will fall rapidly because obviously they have been removed from a continuous food source. Makes perfect Hmm. sense. Um, But in humans, it can actually reach as low as about 1.11. And again, I'm going to do millimoles per liter to about 1.39. So 1.11 to 1.39. So considerably low, low. but that's in the first one to two hours, one to one and a half hours that we're seeing this. So that's basically the baby's been separated from the mother and the placenta. It rapidly drops. And then what happens is these concentrations are temporary. They're asymptomatic as well. So there's no symptoms with it. So they're considered this normal part of adaptation to life earthside, so to speak. So if we tested every baby as it was born, we'd probably find normal is actually quite low. Yes, that we do know. We definitely know that normal is low within that first one to two hours, probably one to one and a half hours. It's a process that actually kickstarts other processes to happen. So by about three hours, we're seeing that these blood glucose levels are starting to rise 
and stabilize. And that's even if they've not had a feed in the healthy term infant. And then we get this kind of rise stabilization of around 2.4 to 2.5 millimoles. millimoles. <laughs> we'll just stop saying that. So 2.4 to 5 at around 12 to 24 hours. So this is the normal thing. And then we've got blood glucose levels that are found in older children and adults by two to four days. So we're having this sort of rapid drop by three hours. It's starting to bring itself up by 12 to 24 hours should be stable. But even as of last year, 2020, the definition of hypoglycemia in the newborn is still significantly disputed over the definition and the number. So what is, so what is the number? What is the number that's common? Is there a number that's commonly used? Like in guidelines? Depends what guidelines you look at. So the guidelines I've got here, and also I will link to this because thankfully, just in time for this podcast, the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine have just um, updated and revised their hypoglycemia policy for feeding from 2021. And they look at the what they call the glucose operational thresholds. And so we've got oh. one, two, three, four, five, five different guidelines here from the American Academy of Pediatrics, Pediatric Society, the British uh, Perinatal Medicine, the Canadian, and also the Svenska Neonatal Offeringen, which is Swedish Neonatal Offerings, I'm guessing. Someone will correct us. But um, when you look at this, and I will put this on Instagram, basically the AAP, which is the most common guideline that particularly in Australia will go with, obviously BAPM, which is the British one, the UK will go with. The AAP are the only ones that separate it into blood glucose levels at 0 to 4 hours, 4 to 24 hours, 4, 24 to 48, and then over 48. So that's despite everybody knowing that there's a significant drop immediately after birth. Yes. And so, yeah. <laughs> and right. so we've got this range from, it's vast, like we've got, and these are operational thresholds as well. So what does that mean? It means thresholds for treatment. So if it's under a certain point, so the mm -hmm. AAP, if it's under, and they also use milligrams. So hold on, let me go to, if the baby within the first four hours is under 1.39 to 2.22. So if they're under 2.22, that is considered um, a time to start intervention. However, it is different in um, different countries. Mostly we're seeing under 2.6 or 2.5 as the threshold range to commence intervention. But... We can't take this alone because if the baby is asymptomatic, we should also be looking at the symptoms. So there's some common clinical signs. There's a huge list, but I'll just go through a few of them, which seem to be the most common in our brains, like jitteriness. I'm going to talk about that. Tachyapnea, which is fast breathing. Exaggerated moro reflex, high-pitched cry, poor suck or refusal to feed lethargy, so extreme tiredness, or this sort of listlessness, not interested in um, not responding well, and cyanosis, so like this bluing of the skin. 
But what was interesting, and this is a fairly old study, it's from 2010, but what they showed was that of all the 23, so maternal and infant risk factors, and there was about, I think, five maternal risk factors. Um, So out of all of those that they studied, only jitteriness and tachyapnea, fast breathing, were statistically predictive of low blood glucose. Mm. However, jitteriness, as we all know, is mm. a very or non-specific sign. Mm. Um, and it's likely to result in false positives. And it's likely to result in a baby who is otherwise well having blood glucose tests. Mm. And then we're doing an invasive heel prick test on an infant for jitteriness and perhaps no other clinical signs, then this is definitely something we should not be doing if we have an otherwise healthy infant. So we also, when we look at the research, we look at the new guidelines, a diagnosis should and always has been. So if a diagnosis of hypoglycemia also needs to show that if you do management, the signs stop. If they're not abating, then there's another Mm. reason. And obviously, further investigations would be done at that point. Um, There was another interesting study um, which looks and talks a little bit more about why we have these different threshold rates of what is normal. So we shouldn't be testing infants within that first one to two hours unless there is they are specifically from un... uh, See, you need to give me that word again. Not unregulated, uncoordinated, uncontrolled. uncontrolled. That, might be the wrong, that might not be the right word. It sounds better than unregulated and uncoordinated, right. but uncontrolled <laughs> gestational diabetes. So these, I'm going to come to that, that camp of, we're back in the camp, that group of infants are slightly different. But there was a study only last year, and they looked at almost 700 healthy but at-risk infants from 35 weeks gestation. And they compared two threshold levels for treatment, treatment of asymptomatic moderate hypoglycemia. And they looked Mm -hmm. at 2 versus 2.6 as the treatment threshold. Mm -hmm. So anything below those amounts, they would commence treatment. So there were fewer and less severe hypoglycemic episodes in the group that measured at 2.6 millimoles per liter. Mm-hmm. But that group had more invasive diagnostic and treatment interventions. So treatment can be more food, but it can also be an IV infusion of glucose. So we're talking about putting an IV cannula into an infant. This is incredibly invasive. And possibly mm. when we do that in most hospitals, we then separate the mum and infant. And we take the infant to the special care baby unit or the NICU. And actually what they concluded in that research was that in healthy newborns with moderate hypoglycemia, a lower glucose treatment threshold at two was at least as good as the traditional threshold as at 2.6. So in terms of the outcomes. So this is why we have a confusion. 
So we have no studies to date that show that treating this temporarily low glucose levels results in better short-term or long-term outcomes compared with no treatment. And were these studies done on gestational diabetic mothers' babies or was this just a mix of all babies who looked like they had hyperglycemia? We'll be right back. I just wanted to pop into your luggles and tell you about my brand spanking new podcast, The Feeding Couch. This podcast ain't just designed with pregnant women or new parents in mind, but also for all of us working in the space of birth work. This is the podcast where I hand the mic over to a different mum, dad, parent or even grandparent to take us on their feeding journey. Every story matters. It's often through hearing others' experiences where we find our own inner knowledge, strength and courage. Listen in to hear the stories told of triumph, challenge, heartwarming, tear-jerking, fist-pumping and how we each deal with our venture into this new world emotionally, socially and physically. Whether you're a student, a newbie midwife, doula, lactation exam prepper, or just hungry for more knowledge, these stories will also give you a backstage pass to the global lactation clinic. Whether you're pregnant and seeking information or supporting those on their journey, I can't wait to see you on the couch with me soon. Oh, and a little favour, your reviews on Apple Podcasts mean the world. They're like magic beans that help spread the podcast out for those who need to hear it. Let's make this something amazing together. Oh, yes, that is a good question. This study um, looked at newborns who were born at 35 weeks or more of gestation. So they had a birth weight of two kilos or more. They also had an indication for routine screening for hypoglycemia, so low blood sugar. Um, And these were newborns in four subgroups at high risk for hypoglycemia. So that was also late preterm infants. So those who were born at 37, sorry, 35 to 37 weeks. Um, Newborns who were considered, who were small, um, so below the 10th percentile or large above the 90th percentile for gestational age. And also infants of mothers with diabetes. So these babies were all otherwise healthy newborns without an initial severe hypoglycemia, so low blood sugar. So that was defined as blood glucose concentrations under 1.9. So um, in terms of specifically looking at babies of mothers with gestational diabetes, the authors stated that the planned number of infants of mothers with diabetes was not actually reached because the infants in this subgroup were less prevalent than expected. There wasn't as many. Um, And so they state that no certain conclusions could be made for this subgroup, although they do state that we believe that our conclusions for this subgroup remain valid because the differences in psychomotor outcomes between the management groups were small and the confidence intervals were narrow. So I must also say that the primary outcome, so the main topic that they were investigating was looking at whether the infant's psychomotor development was different at 18 months of age. 
And then the secondary outcomes of the trial were looking at whether there were fewer diagnostic interventions. So, you know, for example, with the heel pricking that we were just talking about, um, fewer treatments required like supplementation or glucose infusions, um, and also the duration of the hospital stay and the healthcare costs. And as I said before, the trial showed um, these infants who had asymptomatic moderate hypoglycemia. So we're not talking about those infants born under 35 weeks gestation or whose weight was less than two kilos or those who are sick because these babies are at an increased risk. Um, but for those infants who fitted into this trial, and they're the ones who are most likely to be on a maternity ward and not in the NICU or the neonatal intensive care unit, um, starting treatment um, at a blood glucose concentration of two was non-inferior. So that means either equally effective or better than using a blood uh, a two a blood, a two point six millimole treatment threshold with regard to the infant's psychomotor development at eighteen months. I'll of course link to this paper. It's called Hypo Exit, and um, you can get access to that paper quite easily. So that's very good. So there was also another study, and this was on um, this was in late preterm and term infants, so not specifically those from gestational mothers with gestational diabetics, diabetics, diabetes, um, and they diabetes, diabetes, diabetes. They shut up. <laughs> they screened only at risk late preterm and term infants. Okay. And they used the AAPs, the American Academy of Pediatrics 2011 protocol. That's now been revised. There is one from 2015. Um, but they found low blood glucose levels in 27% of the at-risk cohort. Okay. Mm -hmm. Although infants received an average of seven blood samples, the number of samples needed to detect one episode of hypoglycemia was 20.5%. <gasps> yeah and what does what does stabbing a baby's foot and stressing them out do to their blood sugars because we know in labor that's one of the risk factors for hyperglycemia is you know a significant stress in labor and those little babies who haven't got the fat reserves to deal with the stress in labor that they get hyperglycemia so once they're out if we're doing things that are stressing them out are we then yeah, messing so with we, I mean, that's why we're more likely to see babies who are, you know, small for gestational age or intrauterine growth restriction. Uh, you know, there's this long list of other infants who are also at risk, not just those who are born from a mother with mm. diabetes. They're at risk of having low blood sugar because they don't have the reserves or because they've been stressed in labor. But yes, this is such a good question to ask. And this is definitely what the ABM protocol is saying is that we need to be really cautious in the over-treatment and the over-diagnosis uh, of an asymptomatic infant mm -hmm. um, because we are adding stress to them. And we know that babies' cortisol levels massively rise, so do mothers, when we separate them. Um, and when we're using, we've got high cortisol, we're using adrenaline, we're not actually putting the glucose to the places it needs to go. Mm. Um, the other thing is, is the testing. So we have different types of testing 
So this sounds, sounds like it's deja vu, doesn't it? It's like, <laughs> oh, this is really strange. So actually the testing that we use is often a bedside blood glucose monitor like we use for the mums. But that's really not that accurate. And really for infants who are symptomatic, at risk, we should be sending or are not responding to treatment, first line treatment, which is keeping them warm, skin to skin contact, feeding them early and frequently. So that is a feed within the first half an hour, if possible, um, and then a feed every two to three hours. So, you know, with a normal healthy term infant, they might have their first feed after birth, then they probably sleep for six to eight hours. Good. Let them sleep and let this poor mum sleep as well, because it's probably the last time she's going to get that much sleep for 25 years. But um, with at-risk infants, we need to be feeding every two to three hours to just keep that blood glucose consistent. If this management is not working, then we need to be sending that blood glucose test for a laboratory test because it is more accurate and not just keep stabbing them. Sorry, that sounds bad. But and using a bed. That's monitor. probably what it is. And if you think about a baby's foot, so if you look at this, if you scale up the size of the of the you know thing that we use, the prodder, it's like if you put if you put that to my foot, and if you look, it would be massive. Yeah. Yeah, it would be like as big as my microphone, my popper on your yeah. foot. Yeah, but the blade isn't as big as the box but I mean the blade I mean yeah but it's pretty big it's, and it prods it, in it's not a pleasant experience I mean it's not no. pleasant for us to take you know if you've ever had a, a finger prick test it mm. makes you go ouch it's yeah. not nice and it will make you sort of a bit jump a bit it's unpleasant for a baby who's meant to be in this nice nurturing warm space it isn't pleasant. And that's why if this does need to be done, and for some babies, of course, it does need to be done. And it's important that we do it because they have got, they are at risk. Um, they are symptomatic. We do need to test them. And the best way to do that or for any invasive um, treatment is to be holding a baby in skin to skin contact. Ideally, they're having some breast milk put in their mouth, either they're feeding at the time or um, they are having the breast milk put in their mouth and we can also give um, sucrose for pain relief as well. But, you know, if you've got colostrum, then then let's use colostrum. I also worry about babies who have frequent interventions um, or testing done and always having being at the breast while we do it, because mm. does that create an association with pain happens at the breast? Mm. This tends to be for those infants who are maybe in the neonatal unit and are having, you know, daily if not hourly interventions um but also we know the counteractive effects of prolonged skin to skin contact is so beneficial for so many reasons it's not just a nice to do oh let's give your baby a cuddle this is something we should mm. be demanding it's so important it's treatment it is a treatment it is a therapy skin to skin contact or kangaroo mother care however we want to call it because you can call it kangaroo mother care, which is meant to be because you keep them in a pouch for long periods of time, but this is not happening in predominantly high-income countries unless we look up to like the Scandinavian countries. And it is a therapy. These babies go home earlier. This helps all manner of things. So 
having if you have a baby or you are a mother with gestational diabetes the best place to keep your baby is in skin to skin contact it regulates their glucose levels it regulates mm-hmm. their temperature it down regulates adrenaline and cortisol it increases oxytocin they're more likely they're closer to the the kitchen so to speak they're more likely to feed the mum's more likely to have a letdown so it's easier for her to express her milk by pump and by hand, I would be saying from the latest research, she needs to be doing both if the baby's not able to feed. We have all of these positives. Do not be wrapping that baby and putting it in a cot because you've got visitors or people are coming in. The best way to stop visitors holding your baby is by being naked under the covers with your baby there. <laughs> and then they just look at the head and no one's taking that baby from you. So If we are looking at hyperglycemia in relation to actual gestational diabetic babies, so they're bigger because they have higher insulin production, is it different then if it's a big baby that hasn't had increased insulin? So this is just a genetically big baby. Is there a difference in how their blood sugars respond after birth? So what we see is there is a group of babies that obviously are at greater risk, but Large for gestational age infants born to screened non-diabetic mothers are not at risk of hypoglycemia. So that means that the general big baby who has been born genetically, because that's the genetics of those parents, or it's baby number three, and we're now at 4.2 kilos, the mother has been screened, she's not had any Uh, tests come back to say she's diabetic unless that baby is symptomatic of of diabetes, of hypoglycemia, of low sugar, we shouldn't be routinely screening them. This is what is stated. And yet that is, yeah, that's what's happening. And which again, just the underlying thing is that nobody actually understands the pathophysiology of gestational diabetes, that it's not the size of the baby, it's what's happened with the increased insulin. And if you've got a big baby who hasn't had that, it's not going to be affected. No, because it's their genetics that they're bigger. It's not the fact that they've suddenly lost all of this glucose and they've got a ton of bloody Pac-Men running around and their blood Mm. sugar's dropped. But we have policies and guidelines which state that. And that's why I would Mm -hmm. encourage people to go. And I'm so thankful to the Academy of Breastfeeding Medicine, the ABM, new, updated, revised guideline which states that in their guideline. Excellent. Next step to get it into practice. (laughs) Hopefully this podcast can do that. So I will put a link, obviously, to the guideline because you can go and have a look at it. And then it will go through all the categories. It's 13 pages long. It's really in-depth. It's fantastic. But I think also the other thing to talk about is is management um, because I talked about the basic management treatments, but there have been some advances in the last sort of 10 years. And most people who are working in this field have probably seen dextrose gel come into their unit. So is this instead of just giving formula, you know, to? Yes, definitely. (laughs) So I should say that actually, you know, often we're asked if it makes a difference if the baby's formula fed from birth or breastfed Mm -hmm. in terms of how their um, glucose levels respond. And it doesn't matter how the baby is fed. They will actually... Um, go through the same process. What we do know is that formula-fed infants have slightly higher glucose levels um, and lower ketone bodies than breastfed infants. And so what's happening with 
breastfeeding and these low blood sugar levels is actually we're kicking starting these other metabolic processes like utilizing the ketone bodies and the previous fat stores to actually fuel the brain. So Mm. the body will do that for every single baby anyway. So we see a difference in how they're fed, but they should stabilize at the same rate, regardless of whether it's mixed feeding, formula or breastfeeding. But obviously, um, we also know that the breast milk is 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 more effective in terms of in small quantities. You need much larger volumes to bring up a baby's blood sugar than you do with with breast milk. But obviously, if those management systems are not working then dextrose gel has been in since around 2000, the year 2000. Well, that sounds like we've gone all the year 2000. Um, what am I talking about? What are you talking, You're talking about? about something since 2000. Oh, yeah. Okay. So there was, uh, there's been con- randomized control trials looking at the safety of this and the efficacy. Um, and there was a study called the Sugar Baby Study. Um, no. It was. It was called that. Yeah, it was. It was called. The- it was called the sugar baby study. <laughs> now you're just thinking of little like jelly, jelly. Yeah. Um, what are they called? Oh, jelly babies. How could I forget? Jelly that babies. Name? What are they called? Jelly, jelly at babies. Yep. <laughs> it sh- they should have called it the jelly baby study. That would have been great. They should have. Oh. I used to love jelly babies. Oh, I hate them. They give me a headache. They're horrible. The. The line ones. Oh, they're the ones that give me the headache. Are they? We're the perfect I love couple. Those. I'd have the red ones. And then yeah, no, I don't like the red green. ones. Green sweets. Perfect. Green lollies. Gross. Um. <laughs> anyway, dextrose gel. Oh, my God. So this study looked at infants who were 35 to 42 weeks. Okay, so with that category, who were in the first 48 hours of life and who were at risk of hypoglycemia. They were all born in a tertiary hostel in New Zealand and um, they were considered at-risk infants. So that included those infants of diabetic mothers, but also preterm, small or large birth weight. So i.e. less than 10th percentile or over 90th percentile and also infants with poor feeding. So they actually measured the blood sugar levels in these babies from one hour after birth and then every three to four hours pre-feeds for the first couple of days until hypoglycemia was or was not detected. And babies who developed hypoglycemia, so that was in this study, a BSL of under 2.6, they were randomized to either receive three mils of 40% dextrose gel or three mils of a placebo gel. What was in the placebo gel? The placebo gel, it was actually, I have this, made of something called, oh, here we go, carboxymethylcellulose, cellulose, (laughs) carboxymethylcellulose, CMC, And um, so I had a look at what that was, and it's actually used commonly in food as a thickener and like a stabilizer or to stabilize emulsions, things like ice cream and toothpaste, because it's got a high viscosity. This this is going well. It's non-toxic and considered to be hypoallergenic. So this was, yep. All right. So tell us what happened. Right. Dextrose gel reduced the risk of treatment, failure, 
for hypoglycemia defined as under 2.6 and was inexpensive, safe and simple to administer. So most people who've used this will know that it is administered into the side of the cheek, buccal, buccal, actually, I think it's pronounced, though. That's why I said the side of the cheek. And so it's less invasive than obviously putting an IV into the infant. And Mm -hmm. also we're not giving this baby 30 mils or 15 mils of formula, Mm. um, which is usually administered by a bottle, hopefully cup fed if needed. But we know from other research that if we start introducing formula within that first one to two days, these women are less likely to be breastfeeding at six weeks down the track just from introducing one or two. And that's not necessarily the formula itself, but it's the fact that the baby sleeps a long time and then the mum probably hasn't been given correct advice that she needs to stimulate her breast still. So she needs mm-hmm. to express while that baby's still feeding. So it's that's a whole big you know, combination of causality, which one is where. But You were just doing voguing there. I was. We should be videoing this. Um <laughs> So the benefits seem to be that it improves blood glucose levels. You're not separating mum and infant. We're getting decreased admissions into the NICU. Um, we're getting more likely to have exclusive breastfeeding on discharge. Better patient satisfaction. Yeah, no shit Sherlock. Absolutely. Think for mother and infant. And it's well tolerated. So that should be, it's now considered the first line treatment um, and a single repeat dose Um, also appears to be safe. Um, You know, that also brings us to other supplementation that we would have used in the past, like glucose water. Mm. And that goes in with the formula, glucose water, routine supplementation of of infants who may be at risk. Are these of benefit? Mm. Hell no. No, no, no. So the best management is really, like we've talked about, feeding frequently, um as soon as possible um and within half an hour if we've got an at-risk infant and within an hour is in the normal guidelines for healthy term infants and then every two to three hours um they should be screened for hypoglycemia (laughs) and this is great with a frequency so i'm quoting now the um abm guidelines with a frequency and duration related to the specific risk factors of the individual Mm. infant So really, that's going to be based on what's going on in the hospital, I would think. Mm -hmm. And of course, screening should only be performed on at-risk infants and those with clinical signs compatible to hypoglycemia. So that is babies with mothers who have had abnormal blood glucose levels during their pregnancy, not women who have just been labelled as gestational diabetic, but the women who have actually had abnormal blood glucose levels. Yes, because yeah. otherwise we would consider, unless there's any other risk factors, mm-hmm. so if that baby's been born before 37 weeks or before 36 weeks, that's a risk factor. If that baby's mm-hmm. under 2.5 kilos, that's a risk factor. If that baby's got respiratory distress, that's a risk factor. But otherwise, if that baby's born, yes, like you say, to a mother who technically has shown no other signs of gestational diabetes, that baby's a healthy term baby but we need to look at when this baby's been induced if it's been induced and how that baby is responding if that baby's got clinical signs what are we doing is it got clinical signs because it's 
cold and it's not in skin to skin contact, can we warm this baby up for an hour and monitor it? And this is where it gets so complex because really no study has evaluated optimal timing and intervals for glucose screening. But Mm. we have a protocol. We have a new revised protocol. And I would advise people to go and have a look at it because it's long and it's in depth. And it also is specific looking at monitoring of infants should actually commence within 60 minutes after birth for infants with suspected or significant hyperinsulinemia. So all the Pac-Men. All the Pac-Men. So women who have poorly controlled maternal diabetes or a known genetic hyperinsulinemia, mm, high Pac-Men levels. So if women in pregnancy know that they have high blood glucose levels, they're not able to keep them under control, that their baby's going to have lots of Pac-Men, can they prepare? So I know there's a lot of talk about whether women should express colostrum antenatally in preparation or not. What What's the goal? Yeah, absolutely. And this has been around for so many years. We've been doing this and we were actually doing it without any studies showing whether it was safe or not. And the reason why we say safe is because there is a, um, you know, stimulation of the breast and nipples releases oxytocin. And there was a fear that overstimulation during pregnancy could cause preterm birth. And so there was a large study done over several years in Victoria, um, and it's called the DAME Diabetes and Antenatal Milk Expression Study. And it's the only people have RCT. the best names for trials. The Latrobe Group always have good names. Um, so uh, like the pantomime DAME. Yes, absolutely. And um, they did a study. It was released in 2017 uh, in The Lancet as well, because there had never been a study of this nature before. So they looked at uh, almost 800 women and they were looking at women who had pre-existing or gestational diabetes. But these were low risk pregnant women Mm. with this. Okay, so this was not the poorly controlled, the high risk women with diabetes or or gestational diabetes. And that's really important to point out. And so they were randomized to either start hand expression for no more than 10 minutes twice a day from 36 weeks of pregnancy or to normal treatment, which did not include antenatal hand expression. And that's the other thing I need to mention because people often ask, can you use a pump? I would say at this point in time, absolutely not. There is no evidence. We don't know. And I would assume a pump would stimulate the breast more. Mm. It may be safe, but we do not know. So there's no way I would ever advise anyone to do that. So basically, they were really looking at the main outcomes were looking at whether the infants were being more likely needing neonatal care, so separated from their mum. And it found that this didn't differ which is good news. So it found that in terms of that, antenatal hand expression in low-risk women from 36 weeks was safe. They also looked at um, the mean gestational age and they were comparable. And they looked at the chance of 
increased exclusive breastfeeding. And what they found was that if women had expressed colostrum antenatally, and so it was available for their first baby, Mm-hmm. They had an increased chance of exclusively breast being breast milk fed in the first 24 hours of life. And it tended to increase the chance of babies being exclusively breastfed until discharge from hospital. Mm-hmm. But the results were not statistically significant, but they were definitely trending that way. And they saw a greater amount of babies being breast milk fed. Um But what is important to note here is that the average volume women were collecting was around five mils. And some of those women were not able to express anything. Is that five mils each go? No, in total total. for the whole, perhaps four weeks, five weeks, perhaps two weeks. So there was obviously big differences, but the, Mm. the mean was five mils. So we're talking very small amounts for most women. And there was a considerable amount of women who couldn't express anything. And so we need to look at the psychological effect of Mm -hmm. that. And the other thing is that we also need to look at that this study was telling women to do it from 36 weeks twice a day. Now, I've worked in many hospitals and talked to many people, and often it's being started earlier and women are being told to do it anywhere from twice a day to eight times a day. And we don't know the effect of that. We also don't know the effect of those women who were expressing and then getting nothing. And does that then put fear into them that they're not going to have milk for their baby once the baby's born? Quite possibly. What we do know, though, is from this study is that whether the woman was able to express milk or not it didn't impact her breastfeeding. So we know that if she's not able to express milk um, antenatally, it possibly is due to her technique. Mm-hmm. She's doing it on her own. You imagine trying collecting milk in a spoon and then syringing it, or maybe you're just given a one mil syringe and you've got one hand. It's easy for us as people who've been using one hand to pull back a syringe. I'm doing the, the motions now um, <laughs> while we're collecting colostrum from someone, but also the technique, you know, it's it's a technique to learn and we probably get maybe 20 minutes to teach a mum to do it and maybe that's the only thing she gets so there's all of these factors we need to think about so it's really important to reassure mums that even if they don't get any milk it doesn't mean that she won't be able to breastfeed so that's important however I do want to mention research that shows specifically to women with gestational diabetes And this is also a new systematic review of 11 articles with over 8,000 women. And they looked at um, women with uh, gestational diabetes, and they found that the presence of delayed onset of lactation, so when the milk comes in, so when we get this increased volume in milk, should Mm -hmm. be before 72 hours. So it tends to be around 24 to 72 hours that this happens in healthy women with healthy pregnancies and normal physiological births. So there's all, all, there's a huge amount of factors that impact this, but we see that 35% of women with gestational diabetes are affected with having their milk come in beyond 72 hours. And we know that when we have a delay in when the milk comes in, 
these women are less likely to be exclusively breastfeeding at four weeks down the track. And I think it's around 60%. And that's because we haven't put the management in. So what that means is these women are at risk. These babies are at risk of intervention, of being separated. The treatment is always the same. Like the basic treatment will always be there for any at-risk factor, which is just as much as possible, don't separate these babies. Keep them in skin-to-skin contact for all the reasons I listed before. Mm. Get this baby frequently feeding. Stimulate those breasts to make milk. This mum should be feeding a minimum of eight times in 24 hours. Minimum. That's not the maximum. There's a minimum. If that baby is unable to do that, she needs to be replacing that frequency of stimulation or suckling by expressing. And it's temporary. She also needs to know that it's temporary. She's not going to be expressing and feeding and then topping the baby up forever. Because that Mm. is often how women are sent home and they then go, I can't sustain this. And so the packet of free formula that maybe they've got from the pharmacy in some countries, not in all, but definitely in some countries, is going to be used. And then the baby sleeps. And what does that do psychologically? Oh, well, clearly I didn't have good enough, Mm -hmm. good enough or enough Mm -hmm. milk for my baby. And then mum also is told you need your sleep, which she does but she doesn't need a six hour block or she does actually, but a six hour block means it's going to significantly impact potential milk volumes in the future. If this is occurring in those first two weeks. Mm -hmm. So it's just about being mindful of the real basics and keep and talking to women antenatally about how important keeping a baby with her and frequency of feeding is. And then we can do things like dextrose gel, making sure we're looking at policies, making sure we're actually assessing babies correctly as much as we know, and also having a greater discussion with the multidisciplinary team about what protocols are we using, which guidelines are we using, why are we using them, and start looking at some of the new evidence, even though we don't have great evidence for threshold values. And testing correctly, like not only bedside testing, if we've got reason to go for a lab test. So there, that's my spiel. Awesome. So, yeah, I think, I mean, that's really where we're at. It's, it, it's a confusing space to be in for for both pregnancy and then afterwards. Yeah, and, it's, and it shifts and changes. So, <laughs> you know, the, the, the thresholds change and then the practices change and you know how it's hard enough for care providers to navigate that without women having to navigate it once they've been labeled and then sent to the camp where they get fed through the process of induction and then you've got a baby who's hyperglycemic that may be nothing to do with gestational diabetes hold on Just, i lost you it's ah oh, sorry i wasn't saying anything interesting all right <laughs> <laughs> I just want to mention because I didn't specifically talk about those babies who, if they do need treatment, we talked about monitoring beginning within 60 minutes for those infants of mothers with poorly controlled diabetes, but Mm -hmm. monitoring normally should commence before the second feeding or two to four hours after birth in other at-risk groups. So other at-risk groups, we shouldn't be going in in this first hour. And I think we talked about that. And it makes perfect sense. 
We know it's going to be rapidly low. We're then going to have all hell break loose and everyone be scared because we probably got 1.3. And we're much more likely to go for IV treatment rather than dextrose support. So it's stated here. And really, we're monitoring until there is an acceptable pre-feed levels are consistently obtained. And that's normally for three satisfactory measurements. And then it should be stopped. And that's important. We don't want to be keep going on and on. But I did think this was amusing uh, in a way because this is a quote from the ABM guideline, which says a reasonable, and they've put in brackets, although arbitrary goal Hmm. is to maintain plasma glucose concentrations of 2.5 millimoles. Um, So, and if energy intake falls, glucose monitoring should be recommended. So, and of course, if we've got hypoglycemia persisting beyond 48 hours, we've got severe hypoglycemia, we need urgent treatment and that's happening anyway. It's more likely we need to pull back and have a look at that. We don't need to be going in all guns blazing with every single baby. We should be looking at the specific circumstances following the guidelines for those infants. And I just wanted to make that clear as well, because I hadn't touched base on what happens if we do need to have support. Um, So, yeah, go and have a look at the guidelines, compare it to what's happening in your hospital. And if you're pregnant, then it's important to just talk to your midwife, birth worker, healthcare provider, and talk about antenatal hand expression as well. And going back even further, really consider the test. Because once you've got that label, it's it's very difficult to pick it off. It's like one of those jar labels, you know, that you can't get off. <laughs> you need to get the hairdryer out to get the. Um, the oh, how you do? I thought it was olive oil and olive oil and something else, salt Ooh. or something. Oh, well, hairdryer does work as well. Does it? Yeah, because it warms up the glue, but then you still got to pick it off. So maybe the olive oil after that. Oh, I haven't got a hairdryer. The tips you get in this podcast. You haven't got a hairdryer. <laughs> you no. haven't got a hairdryer. No. Really. Who yeah. hasn't got a hairdryer? Me. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel, no hairdryer. <laughs> what would I do with the hairdryer? Dry hair. <laughs> Dry. <laughs> it dries itself. <laughs> I have short hair. I need to do something with it. Right, on that note. of hair dryers and make sure you want tests Um, make sure you want a hair dryer sticky labels no one wants to be the sticky label that's left behind after you've put it in the dishwasher or you've washed but so what you're saying is consideration options where can women go to get more information about this during their pregnancy or ideally during their early pregnancy uh well, you could start with my blog because it took me bloody ages to write. <laughs> Did you like my segue? <laughs> Links in the show notes, they're called, I realised the other day. Show notes. There you go. Show notes. Yeah. I would just say, like, women have got enough to do without researching and being experts on absolutely everything in their pregnancy. Yeah, that is true. But if you're being offered a test, any test, then you need to consider... What will happen if, because I think a lot of times women have tests assuming that they're going to be all right, so then they'll be reassured. You know, I'm going to have this scan and it'll show that my baby's normal and then I'll be reassured. 
And then when the test does what it's meant to do, which is actually pick up abnormality, you then hurtled off into another direction. And I would just say to any woman, when a test is offered, think about what happens if this test comes back positive. What will then be my, do I want to know? Is it something I want to know? Would it change what I do? You know, and in terms of gestational diabetes, do I want to get that label? Um, Or, you know, the other approach to gestational diabetes is to actually, instead of targeting women who don't meet a threshold, it would be about supporting all women to eat healthily and well Mm-hmm. and just be in general good health because mm-hmm. that's going to impact on their blood glucose levels. So, you know, that would work instead of focusing on the pathology all the time and the let's find the problem and then use the treatment. How about we promote and support health? And there's actually a really good book um, that is linked on my blog post. Lily Nichols has written a book about nutrition and pregnancy but she's also written one specifically for gestational diabetes so brilliant i would recommend that we'll put it in the show notes good old show notes <laughs> fabulous <laughs> do, 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 show notes show notes do, do, do. on that note not from the show notes i think it's time to say goodbye and yep. hopefully we have answered all your questions on gestational diabetes because We're not talking about it again. (laughs) (laughs) Take that off the list. (laughs) Thank you for being with us for the second part, all about hyperglycemia in the baby. We hope you enjoyed this episode as always, and we love hearing from you. If you would like to support the podcast further by fueling us with a coffee, all you need to do is head over to our Patreon. The link is in the show notes and have a look at how you can keep this show on the road. Now to say a big thank you to you guys for taking the time for sharing our podcast all over Instagram and for leaving us lush comments on Apple Podcasts. Are you going to be the ones I read out today? This first one is from Mum's Milk, and I had to read it as I loved the heading. Gold nuggets in golden tones. What a treat for my lockdown walks to immense in these poddies. As a midwife and lactation consultant, I am so grateful for the work of Katie and Rachel and now another way to hear about it. Thank you so much. I love that. Hopefully my golden tones were coming across very lovely in your lug holes. And this is from Megs Roberts and Meg says, inspired by the birth time movement and movie. If you haven't seen that, please go and look up Birth Time, the movie. I looked into some of the fantastic professionals interviewed only to find that Rachel Reed was the midwife that developed one of my favourite websites that I often refer to in my practice. Fantastic podcast, addictive, funny and reignites the passion to keep learning. Essential for all midwives and doctors. But really, it's fabulous for anyone and everyone. Thanks, ladies. It's the bomb. Well, thank you, Megs. So please head over to Apple and give us a comment if you feel like it, because it really helps to get this message out to as many people as possible. But as always, I will leave you now until the next episode with our bloopers. My belly is gurgling. Hopefully you can't hear that. (laughs) 
Your, pa- your Pac-Men are going off. Pac-Men are going way off. There's no sugar to eat. Aye, man. I need an egg. Guys from New Zealand, they've got a song that's like the year 2000. Flying something. Who are they? And what's the song? It's brilliant. It's a robot song. Anyway. I know who you mean, but I can't. Anyway, can't remember it. Now you've just got me thinking of Little Britain with... No, not Little Britain. George Dawes with his... In 1994, <laughs> we heard that. <laughs> I was at the door in 90. I'm, I'm just actually making this up, but it's along the Sounds lines. like it would anyway. be something like that. Anyway, back 30 odd years, because that's our recent references <laughs> in the, in um, pop culture, folks. We will not Marty be branching out. Marty McFly, we do free. Oh, brilliant. Go on then. 2000. They had to have a glass of water. Wondering which of my courses is for you? Breastfeeding and lactation, the fundamentals has been designed for everyone working in the birthing field or those on their journey to becoming breastfeeding specialists or IBCLCs. This course gives you seven hours of CPD and is packed with reflective learning, case studies and some pretty tough at times quizzes to make sure this stuff sticks. It also means you can meet me monthly in my live Q&A. This is my course that I hope will fill in the gaps that traditional breastfeeding education has left out. I want you completing this, feeling confident to support any breastfeeding or lactation challenge of those in your care. But wait, I have another course called The Feeding Couch. Who's this for? Currently, around 80 to 96% of women decide to breastfeed during their pregnancy, but by just eight weeks after birth, a third to almost 50% of those women have stopped breastfeeding. And of those women who stopped, 80% say they stopped breastfeeding before they wanted to. Learning about breastfeeding during pregnancy has been shown to improve breastfeeding self-confidence and improve the rate of exclusive breastfeeding in the short and the long term. I believe every mum should be able to choose how she wants to feed her baby and for how long. Knowledge is power. That's why I created The Feeding Couch, designed to be watched during pregnancy or for new mums and parents who may be struggling right now with breastfeeding. The content is in step-by-step, binge-worthy whilst pregnant or for those most tired of days postpartum. Totally easy to find exactly what you need and dip in and out when you need a breastfeeding answer quickly. And for you, beautiful podcast listener, there is a 10% discount off both courses when you use the code POD10, that's P-O-D-10, at checkout. To find out more, hop on over to my website, katiejames.site, and have a look at the incredible content waiting for your lucky peepers. (laughs) 